0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Voices of Music Therapy podcast. My name is Brian Locascio, and today's guest is the associate professor and incoming coordinator of the music therapy program in the Bowers School of Music and the Arts at Florida Gulf Coast University. Her research focuses on emotion regulation development, particularly in preschoolers who are neurodevelopmentally at risk, as well as clinical music intervention development Outside academia, her professional work involves advocacy, policy, and social media communications. We want to give a warm welcome to Dr. Kimberly Senamore.
1: Thank you for having me, Brian. I'm excited to join you today.
0: Yes, thank you for coming on the show, and I'm excited for all of our listeners to hear the wonderful topics that we have. But before we dive in, I would like to get to know you and have the audience get to know you as well. So my very first question for you today is how do you define music therapy?
1: Oh, um, how do I define music therapy? There's I think a difference between how I it kind of depends on who I'm talking to. You know, am I talking to students, am I talking to parents, am I talking to colleagues versus how I understand it? So if I'm I'm talking, say, to a lay person or or somebody who has never heard of music therapy, I might say something like, you know, music therapy, well, this involves the use of music to help make somebody's life better. So for example, uh we can use music to help a child on the autism spectrum learn how to communicate, right? And practice their communication skills all the way through, you know, helping somebody who's maybe had a stroke relearn to walk and talk again. And you know, music has this pretty incredible impact on the brain and the body and we work from cradle to grave with individuals of all ability levels. So I I try to frame it in a way that's accessible to them, that they'll understand. Um, In terms of how I understand music therapy, that is kind of a, it's a continual evolution, really. Um, And I'm getting personally more interested in this idea of, and it's not a new idea, I, I take absolutely no credit for this, but this idea of, you know, how do we, engage through music and, and with music and how can we really leverage that to help empower people to be the best version of themselves that they can. Right. And, and whatever that means for them. Yeah. So I I guess that's, that's a little bit of, you know, how do I define music therapy? That's kind of a long answer there, but that's not a simple question.
0: It is not. And I love that you explained kind of the two versions, because I don't think that's something that we've ever mentioned on the show. And I think it's very important to to look at how you explained it to other people, but also your understanding. Because yeah, th- those can be completely different and coming from different perspectives, because they don't have, nec- people who are not in the field may not have the expertise to really understand like everything that we're saying. So that might be something we include on future episodes. I, I like that take.
1: Yeah. And it kind of ties into the topic today a bit, right? How do you communicate who we are and what we do?
0: (laughs) Absolutely. And so for you and that understanding, is it, I know from my background as well, but is it something that as you kind of learn more and get more expertise in a certain area, you're like, oh, my whole perspective of this is shifting along with that expertise or?
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, not even just expertise, but experiences as well, I think. But I, I, you know, see a lot of what we do. I mean, music has just this incredible impact on our brains and our bodies. And and it's also this really important kind of way to connect with other people. And so the, the combination of all the different ways being involved in music can can influence us. I mean, I, I think we're kind of experts in leveraging that, right? Yeah. So, and, and we're the musical experts and, and not only the musical experts, but experts in kind of reading human behavior, if you will. And, and I, I, I'm not, ai don't take a behavioral approach, but I do think behaviors serve an important communicative function um, and I think we are expert at kind of reading, okay, what's the client doing? And then really trying to meet them where they are.
0: Yeah. Every, everything's adjusted constantly. And
1: exactly, exactly. And we have the musical expertise to do that.
0: Mm-hmm. So then what led you to pursue the musical expertise to do so? What, what brought you to the field of music therapy?
1: Oh, I love this. Because um, me, I've, I've always been a musician, right? right. I started on Piano when I was seven, flute when I was 10. I've been singing my whole life. Music always made sense to me. Um, That's really the the easiest way I can think of to explain that. It always made sense. That said, I knew I didn't want to practice for three, four, six hours a day. And, you know, music education wasn't really quite a fit. But I did when I when I started my college career, I did start as a flute performance major because that's all I knew at the time. The summer after my freshman year, I was taking summer classes at the University of of Kansas before we started recording. Brian and I were talking about kind of our histories and where we're from. And I went to high school in in the Kansas City area on the Kansas side. And and so I was taking summer classes at, at KU and I lifeguarded with a woman named Amy who was just finishing her music therapy degree. And she was about to start her internship at the VA in Topeka. Um, And just in the course of talking with Amy, there was something like, okay, this is kind of interesting. And I I have this, you know how we have these moments in our lives, which are these just pivotal, like our life goes in a different direction. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing, you know, amazing about this moment. I was sitting in her living room. She had this bookshelf, like in the corner of of her living room. And I'm sitting on this floor, flipping through one of her music therapy textbooks, thinking this is exactly what I want to do. Like there was no question about it. That's what I wanted to do. So I ended up transferring schools in the middle of the summer, um, which is a little harder to do. Kind of this was, you know, pretty much pre-internet or so early internet that this was not an online switch. (laughs) So my mom helped me kind of navigate that. And I transferred to the University of Iowa and haven't looked back since. Three degrees in music therapy and lots of different ways of being a professional in in the field and I just I love it. I, I continue to love and be excited and stimulated by it.
0: And it isn't it amazing just who the people are that can introduce us. I've heard it from other music therapists. I've heard it from people who like their band teachers before. It's it's just really amazing like how people first hear about the field. Absolutely. Absolutely. So then let's say the three degrees that you mentioned after you've gotten certified and you've gone through all that schooling, what does it look like for you currently? What does that shift look like? What? Where are we?
1: Well, that, I mean, I am in the middle of a transition right now. I've spent the last seven years on faculty in the Frost School of Music at the University of Iowa, and it was a great, that was my first academic position. It was a great way to learn and a place to learn how to be a faculty member. My colleagues there were were fantastic. That's uh, Shannon Delatoile and Teresa Lesiak, and I'm I am now I, I have resigned from UM and I am the incoming coordinator for the music therapy program. It's a fairly new program at Florida Gulf Coast University. Um so I'm actually recording this where I'm in the middle of middle of a break. In fact, and Brian knows this, I'm doing this on an iPad. <laughs> so there's some like technical interesting things. I'm used to being on a computer. So anyway, so I'm I'm excited going into Florida Gulf Coast uh, to have the opportunity to shape a program and, and really grow a program. Like I said, this is a fairly newer program. It was started by Mike Warbacher, who is officially retiring this year. Um, and, and he did, I, I think, just a bang up job getting this started. It's like five or six years old, maybe. I mean, it's it's new. Um, so I'm excited to kind of take the helm and, and be able to, to shape a program. The other Kind of pieces of what I do professionally. My my longest job right now. I've been doing it eleven years. I'm regulatory affairs associate for the Certification Board for Music Therapists. Um, so through this position, uh, I, I work with just a fantastic team that includes government relations staff from AMTA, uh, Judy Simpson, Maria Fay, mostly, and, and Rebecca Preddy as well, um, as well as Dina Register uh, at CBMT and. We work uh, to implement and facilitate the state recognition operational plan. So if you hear anything about music therapy licensure or legislation or advocacy, I, I'm part of the team that's involved
0: in that. So continuing to make big impacts.
1: Yeah, it, and it's, it's, it's so exciting. It's so exciting. I, I absolutely love it. And then on the scholarly side, I'm associate editor communications for the Journal of Music Therapy, which is was a new position when I started. I guess I've been in it four years. I think it started in 2017, but don't quote me on that. (laughs) I have to look back at my notes. And then I do, you know, I've been blogging. I've been blogging since 2009. Um, It's intermittent these days just because life gets in the way, but I uh, still like to keep that up.
0: So that sounds like a great resource for anybody as well. We can link that blog in the show notes if you'd like.
1: I'd love that. That'd be great.
0: They can have access to it just to learn a little bit more. And it sounds like they can really kind of follow along with you throughout the years.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You can go way back. (laughs) on that.
0: (laughs) Do you find it? um, This is just me being curious, but do you find it difficult to manage so many high level roles and responsibilities? I don't think we really hear about that much from the people who are up in those higher positions. So I'd love to get your take on it.
1: I mean, yes and no, I have, I, part of it works well because of how my brain works. I compartmentalize really well. (laughs) And so, you know, when I'm focused on, okay, this is what I'm doing. This is what I need to do. I have also gotten really good at, um, prioritizing and time management (laughs) or project management, like personal project management. And I was kind of forced into that early on, you know, as I was starting my career and having kids. Right. And, and so I had to learn, OK, well, they're down for a nap. I have this hour and a half. And I, I was not the uh, mom who napped during that hour and a half. I mean, when they were like weeks old, I did. But you know, now I was like, all right, now I get to work. I have an hour and a half. Here I go. The, the dishes and the laundry can wait. <laughs> so it's amazing what you can do when you sit down. It's like, OK, I have 15 minutes. You can knock some things out in short periods of time. And so I've, I've really just for myself honed that. Um, over the years, I have lots of lists <laughs> everywhere and
0: lists, yes, <laughs>
1: prioritize and reprioritize. And so, yeah, it's but I, I kind of enjoy it, too, which is um, I get some satisfaction out of, all right, here's my project list for the, the week or the day or what have you and knocking through it. Um, I get satisfaction out of that. I had a colleague when I was leaving UM, she she goes, you are just so freakishly organized. So thank you. I'll I'll take that. (laughs) I'll take that.
0: Yeah. Big compliment. Interesting wording.
1: (laughs) I took it. It was great.
0: (laughs) Well, that's great. And I ask that for anybody who hopes to have those types of um, higher level roles, either in CBMT, AMTA, um, going into any type of academia setting to kind of know what areas to focus on.
1: And a lot of these were too, um, I mean, that's part of it, but it's, I have a lot, they they all evolved organically, right? I didn't necessarily set out to do X, Y, and Z. These were opportunities that presented themselves often through uh, my relationships with with colleagues and other people. I mean, that having those professional relationships is so important. I, I can't stress that enough. And I'm I'm really um, fortunate in that way to to just have some fantastic colleagues, mentors, friends now
0: in many cases. So get to know your professors, get to know your network and your local music therapists, (laughs) join your state forces and conferences.
1: Mm -hmm. Be involved.
0: My next question is kind of the big highlight of the show, and that is what do you contribute to the world of music therapy and how are you innovative, which you've kind of spoken a little bit about. But this can tie into our topic today as well.
1: Yeah! Wow, uh, that's a big question. <laughs> yeah, and talking about yourself, my goodness. <laughs> I, I mean, I'd, I'd like to think that there are a couple of different pockets and and ways I'm, I aim to contribute, and one is, and and one of the the biggest ones for me, especially being an educator, is doing my little part to help shape the next generation of music therapists, right? And so, uh, you know, I've spent a lot of time over the last seven years in particular, thinking about the clinical training of music therapists and the education of music therapists. And what I was teaching seven years ago is different than what and how I'm teaching it now. Um, and I look forward to, again, bringing some of those thoughts and ideas to, to Florida Gulf Coast. Um, so that's that's one piece, right? Um, certainly the the CBMT work, there's shaping kind of the the policy and advocacy side. And, and that has been just such an incredible journey. <laughs> I know that's that's an oft-used word, but just to see that process unfold of really advocating for the profession and getting our profession and credential recognized um, in in formal ways as a health and education profession. And and so all of these, you know, I, I just saw the AMTA email that came out highlighting the bills that were passed in Maryland and um, Iowa. Sorry, I was like, I, I know, I know what state I'm thinking of—Iowa <laughs> title protection in Iowa, and licensure in Maryland—and we're seeing those uh, types of successes. Each year now, you know, where we're having, we're now in a pattern of a couple of bills a year being passed. Knock on, knock on wood. If you find some around, um, and and the successes we're seeing now are built on the last fifteen years of work, and it's really, really exciting to see that and to see the impact that's making on music therapists and on increasing consumer access to music therapy services. Um, and then the third area is, and, and this ties in more directly to the topic today is is this idea of communications and i'm i'm really fascinated and aim i mean i've i've done a lot of this through social media and in particular blogging but how can we explain what we do in a way that's interesting and accessible and and the myriad ways of how music impacts health and wellness and human functioning
0: and thank you and i can hear the progression as you're speaking about it on how one relates to the other and how they're all like these interconnected pieces.
1: I totally think they are. I totally think they're connected. And yeah, it does seem like I'm, I'm, you know, um, have this pocket here, this pocket here, and this pocket here of what I'm doing, but I see them absolutely connected and related to each other. So, which is why when, when you asked me that, okay, well, what do you want to talk about today? This idea of, of communications jumped out because it, it transcends all these different areas. So I'm I'm not coming in necessarily saying I'm an expert in this topic, but I, um, I think there's, there's a lot of value in just sharing your experiences and what, you know, at this point, even if you know, Hey, it's going to change later or other people have different ideas.
0: Yeah, so as far as communication goes, I'm gonna let you have the floor here as far as where we wanna start first, and then we'll we'll hit the ground running.
1: Well, I I'm gonna start first actually with kind of where this interest came from for me. It harkens back to to growing up. And and so growing up, my, my mom's partner Jane, she's you know, has a grew up a lot of different places, but has a lot of Southern in her roots. And and I don't know um, how many of the, the listeners are from the South or have family from the South. I'm currently married to a Southerner. He's from Kentucky, but you know, Proverbs are, are kind of big. This may, you know, this is probably not unique to the South, but Proverbs are big. And so there, there's a lot of Proverbs growing up. Pretty is as pretty does strike while the iron is hot, all those kind of life lessons built into that. Um, and one of them, this isn't so much a like a proverb, but just something that they harped on. Mama Jane harped on over and over and over again. Communication is key. Communication is key. And you know, arguably, they they may have kind of taken it to the extreme in some instances. <laughs> I say that lovingly, <laughs> but that was just one of those lessons that was drilled into me. Communication is key. Communication is key. So, so to me, it's kind of funny thinking now and, and reflecting on that, how how deep that lesson is and, and how that really permeates a lot of what I do now, when, whether it's oral communication in terms of the advocacy piece to social media communications, to written communications, um, everything from emails to writing, you know, I write research articles and book chapters. And um, I'm, I'm really fascinated with, what we say, who we say it to, how we say it. And I've, I've spent a lot of time thinking about that and the different ways we communicate to fit different contexts.
0: Yes, that was one of the big things on the show I had to think about when thinking about all the different people I'd interview coming from these different perspectives. What would be the role as far as communication? What type of language and uh, I would use to explain the topics or to prompt questions so i I completely understand how important that is from like a podcast radio background perspective when it comes to disseminating information
1: yeah, and i'm I'm not here to necessarily share how to communicate, but I think it's so important to really think about and and really that's um that's kind of the it for me is is how do we think about and reflect on and be intentional with what we're communicating how we're communicating and why we're communicating
0: so in thinking about how we communicate and why we're communicating what is some advice you have for businesses in regards to communication
1: i love this so i i um my career i i started with a private practice i i had a private practice in uh, northern colorado for five, six years, something like that. Um, and just, oh man, I loved it. I loved being a, a business owner and I, I didn't have the opportunity then when we moved to get my PhD, I, I would have kept on. I, I really, um, th- the idea of creating something from nothing is just, I love it so much. It's really um, uh, fulfilling. It's really fulfilling. And there's so many private practice owners and small business owners right now who are just doing tremendous, inspiring, creative work. I I just, I I have so much admiration for kind of that pocket of of music therapy, which has nothing to do with the topic today. I'm just kind of going off here, but yeah, for, for the private practitioner, this idea of communication, I mean, again, there's a couple of different places it fits in. One of course is, is just the, the communicating with your clients, right. And, and the family members and having that written documentation. But to, to me, the real it too. I mean, when you have a business, your business only thrives if you have clients. Um, And what does that involve? Well, that involves marketing, right. And that involves um, really getting connected within your community, networking with your community. I mean, the, the, Best referral is word of mouth, um, and it doesn't matter how fancy or how much money you put towards marketing. It's still word of mouth that has the biggest impact in terms of generating pr- prospective clients. Uh, but I, I remember, you know, when I was, I, I knew nothing about a private practice when when I started it in, in two thousand five. So I spent many years learning about not only just the how tos of running a business, but Trying to get into business best practices, and I remember this big light bulb moment. Uh, There was actually an art therapist, I believe she was in Florida. I'm I'm not really remembering it, but one of the biggest ah ahas for me, I I learned from her. I think I took like a course from her or or something like that. It's been a while now, Um, but you know, she said when one of her lessons that really hit home to me. When you're marketing what you do, as in, again, I was in kind of this private practice mind frame, you don't necessarily talk about what you do, what you talk about, what is important to communicate is the need you're filling. Mm -hmm. So when you're working to um, generate prospective clients, when you're talking about, okay, what is the it of your practice? It's not about what you do and how you do it. What need are you filling? What, how are you helping? And, and you got to keep it simple. Like, you know, one, one statement, and, and some people may think of this as the vision or related to the mission in some way, but it really harkens back to what's the need you're filling. And if you can, if you can get that core and if you can find a way to communicate that and have all your messaging around that, um, that, that is what provides clarity to people. Right. And then, you know, they ask questions and then you can get more into the, okay, well, here's how I do it and and what I do and the services I offer. But it's really that being able to communicate the need you're filling is, is it.
0: And within your private practice, did you work with like a particular population or diagnosis? And if not, did you shift that, that what need you're filling, depending on the person asking?
1: I, I, I kind of had, two areas, really. One was childhood mental health and the other was um, medical, both oncology and rehab. And I I don't know that I ever got to a good place there with my business. Um, That was something I was was starting to learn and, and think about. And then we moved and I ended up closing my business. So I didn't really have it. At the time, <laughs> you know, but it was something I was working on. So, so I, I can't claim to um, have a success story in that area, but it's still something that it just, it hit home. It hit home. It's, it's, it's not something that you can always, I think, get to right away. It takes time and maybe something that
0: even evolves, right? Tying it back to those experiences that change our perspective. And
1: exactly. We- exactly. Yeah, you really have to put in the time to to think about it, I think.
0: So then shifting from a practice, like a private practice mm-hmm. and kind of thinking about like academia as well, how are ways that communication can impact colleagues and thinking about how you're going to educate like students and this big kind of shift that happened?
1: Mm-hmm. There's so many different ways to take this when thinking about Education. But one of the lessons I really try to impart for my students in particular is to be, whether it's in written or oral communication, to be aware and intentional with the words that they use. Because language does have power. And how, you know, I mentioned earlier that how I teach now is different than how I started, right? You know, one of those areas is um, in the language that we use in particular in, in the language we use when talking about clients. Um, you know, so when I went to school, it was person first language and we're seeing now this real shift um, from person first to identity first. Now it's, it's not a total pendulum swing because it really, it still does go down to uh, client preference. And last time I checked if you're unsure, at least according, I think to APA or or something like that, the American psychological association, at this moment, if you're, say writing, it's it's person first, but um, that may change, right? That may change as just because language changes and language shifts. But you know, ultimately, uh, again, language does have power. Language changes, language evolves. And that's a, a pretty important thing to be aware of. You know, we're we're working with people and and the words we use, whether it's about them or to them, they matter. They matter. They can impact the, the therapeutic relationship, which is so key to the work that, that we do. And so we, we really need to be aware of that. That's really all I'm trying to say.
0: <laughs> Are there any common mistakes or I feel like mistakes is might be too harsh of a word, but like common things that you see repeating in students?
1: Um, oh yeah. Oh yeah. So, and, and I, it's so funny and and I'm sure I'm not alone in this or like, it seems like each semester, each year, I kind of have the thing that gets me. Um, Mm -hmm. and the last year it's been guys referring to a group of people as guys, like, Mm -hmm. you know what? I'm not a guy. <laughs> you know? So, um, and and by some of my students uh, joked that, you know, that was the one thing like in their first, you know, practice in class, what's something that you learned that you'll never forget? Don't call groups of people guys. <laughs> was, that was one I, I heard about a lot. Oh yeah. Um, that's definitely, that's a big one for me. You know, and I tell my students, uh, you know, with your friends, what have you, that's fine. With clients, mm If it's a group of people, it's everyone, it's y'all, it's everybody, Um, unless there actually is a group of guys that you're working with.
0: (laughs) And I would also suggest from an alternative perspective too, is that you may not know who identifies as a guy within a group that is perceived as all male.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: You never really know unless you have been working with them for a while. Unless
1: you know them. Right. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, the first time, it's, it's been a while, but it was, um, I can tell you, it was in a, exactly when this idea of uh, personal pronouns came into my awareness, and it was from a student, um, and this was pretty early on. I mean, this is probably 2016, maybe, um, and this particular student, she was to have placed in, an, in a pediatric medical facility in an inpatient behavioral psych unit. And so every week she never knew who she was working with. And she started each session, go around, you know, say your name and your, I think, I forget if she's referred to it as preferred pronoun or personal pronoun, Um, probably preferred at the time. I think now we're saying, okay, what's your personal pronoun? See, language changes. (laughs) Uh, So what's your preferred pronoun? And then, then she had one other prompt, but that was the first time I was like, oh, I had never thought about that. So thank you, Monica, for <laughs> back in the day, for kind of bringing that into my awareness.
0: Monica, if you're listening, this is your shout There you up. go.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's right, Monica.
0: <laughs> yeah. So that's in terms of facilitation. Are there any types of communication via email or um, reoccurring trends in that way that you think for students or um, within academia where you, you're kind of like this, this could have multiple meanings, this saying it like this would be much more effective or less, um, open to interpretation.
1: Going, going to email specifically, I, I think largely it depends on who you're emailing, right? If it's somebody who's, You know, a friend or somebody you know well, you can be much more informal. You don't need the greeting, you don't need the salutation at the end. But email is—I mean, it's a—it's a pretty—it can be a pretty formal form of communication, right? And so, I think that's important to to keep in mind. You know, have maybe this is a bit old school, I don't know, but (laughs) you know, have the the greeting at the beginning, have the salutation at the end, and so I, I and all most not all many of my emails with best and and I don't know if that's the if that's great but it's like it just seems like a I don't know I like it more than sincerely but that's just me. (laughs) Um so that's just me. That's just my personal my personal preference. There's nothing wrong with sincerely (laughs) at all. I just best is also four letters. It's shorter, it's faster.
0: I'm (laughs) laughing for context for everybody listening. My go-to is sincerely. So that's why I was like, oh (laughs) no, there's nothing
1: wrong with sincerely. I just use best. That's all. Yeah.
0: No 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 it's okay. <laughs> I'm just I'm just kidding.
1: No but but seriously I mean I I have gotten emails from students that were either too informal or borderline disrespectful and I've you know emailed them back and said all right here's a better way to have you know asked for this or said this and um more more in and helping them, again, be aware of what are you saying and how you're saying it. If, if there's something that you're have high emotions about, (laughs) right. So if, um, you know, I encourage you don't fire off emails. If you want to, you can draft something, but go back to it later. So again, email. Yeah. If you have, have something you're angry about, or again, have that high emotion, wait until you're cool. Wait until your head is cool before you maybe even write it and or send it.
0: Pro tip, write it in the notes app and not in the actual email because then you don't have to worry about sending it.
1: Accidentally sending it, right? Yeah. right. And then also be aware of the uh, reply versus reply all. <laughs> right? And know the wow. difference between um, CC and BCC.
0: <laughs> yes. Yes, right? absolutely. For those who don't know, do we just kind of want to outline it for them? I think most people know, but you never know.
1: That's true. Oh, yeah. So um, BCC is blind. So I think CC literally stands for carbon copy. And this harkens back to, does it? Am I? You look confused. Am I
0: I? No, I'm verifying it. Yep. Blind carbon copy.
1: Ah, look at me. Carbon copy. I mean, I don't think we really know that, but that, you know, goes back to when like you would write letters, and you would actually, you know, have that carbon paper, or write anything, or checks, or or what have you. That would make a copy of what you're writing. Um, and so the CC is carbon copy. Everyone knows that. Hey, this person is copied. the The email is not directed to them, um, but it's something that they need to be aware of, or have for their files, or reference, or what have you. Blind carbon copy is okay. I'm copying somebody, but not everyone knows. So, for example, when um, Sometimes when I send out big, well, I, I do this with uh, my, my CBMT work, when I send emails to the 300 task force members, right, I blind copy all of them., <laughs> and, you know, so sometimes it's a privacy thing. Um, that's how I see it in, in that case. I, I carbon copy, say the you know executive directors and the other members of the what we call the national team. Like Judy Simpson, Dina, Register, Maria Faye. So I'll just copy them so they're all aware and, and in the loop, but I'll blind copy the 300 task force members.
0: And for those listening, that'll be right underneath name, email address. You can, you can usually click a tab if you don't see BCC. Uh,
1: <laughs> I can't believe I just nerded out on that. But
0: <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I never knew what it stood for, but I knew what it did. So
1: <laughs> There you go. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. So that's just a really great way though.
1: Yeah, I I think, I, man, I think maybe in a previous life, I was a, a linguist or something like that, or, you know, studied language. The other thing I'm going to nerd out on a bit, so related to communication is this idea of one space or two after the period. Do you know how that came about?
0: No, I'm, I'm ready.
1: Uh, back to typewriters, right? So with typewriters, because of how the typesetting was with the kind of older printing presses and then typewriters, the two space, you needed the two spaces to um, help visually define the different sentences. Mm -hmm. As we got into computers and with all the different types of fonts, the the fonts are designed in a way that you don't need the two spaces anymore, right? And so the the fonts are more relative, like the the letters and the punctuations are more relative to each other instead of the the same length. And so you don't need the the two spaces anymore
0: so do you find double spacing being more common in older generations then Mm -hmm. yeah yeah
1: and I I do think I do think now all of that said I I do think I need to double check APA because I again don't quote me on this but um I think two spaces is still acceptable
0: right I will find that out and link it in the show notes everybody the APA for spacing will be linked (laughs)
1: Right, so don't quote me on that. I, I, well, my APA manual is uh, packed up right now because, <laughs> yeah, um, I don't, I don't have easy access to it at
0: this point. It is APA style recommends placing two spaces after a period that ends an ends a sentence. There you go. It's not often enforced. Um, yep, you're right. It provides aid in proofreading. Yep. So mm-hmm. everybody, the the facts are there.
1: <laughs> I know. <laughs>
0: Just got a live fact check. Um, I did want to bring up something that came up to mind when you're speaking with spacing that is very common for, I don't know, I've, se- I've seen it in a lot of communication and I think that the meaning has changed between millennials and like Gen Z versus um, other age groups. And that is the dot, dot, dot at the end of a sentence or a phrase. Yeah. So maybe... I could talk about like kind of our perspective from the dot, dot, dot. And then say, I,
1: please do, because that's not one I've thought about. So please.
0: Yeah. So usually with uh, three dots, that's more of like a a passive kind of comment. So it'd be really common to be like, oh, I didn't get that email from you. Dot, dot, dot is a good way of saying like, where is it? What What is going on? Like I, I did my part. Where are you at? You know, so it can have this like kind of kind of like a sassy tone to it a little bit. Whereas I know that's not what it means.
1: Yeah. It's meant to be like a pause or a, mm-hmm. a break. Yeah. Which I guess even, even with the um, passive sassiness, that kind of is a pause. Like, Oh, I didn't get that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, interesting. I see now, now, now you're going to get me thinking about how I use ellipses. Cause I do use them, um, but I need to kind of go back and, see what I've written that includes them. And what does that mean? I do them Well, I use them a lot. <laughs> yeah. I think not so much in email, but in texting.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. In texting, I feel like it's less for like, it, it's the formality of an email that makes it very almost intentional. Cause like you're saying, you have to really think about emails a lot of times.
1: See, and I, I don't know, I, I need to go back and, and think about it when I'm doing more formal emails. I don't think I really use ellipses. But informal, it's, you know, there's somebody I know, Yeah. probably do it more. Hopefully not. Oh, well, I don't know. Wow. Now when I look back and see, was I sassy there? <laughs> what kind of ellipsis was this?
0: <laughs> I love all the people who have been practicing for a while who are like, oh no. <laughs> As far, I, this is something that we hadn't previously discussed, but it, I, you're giving me all these ideas. When I'm thinking about communication, do you have any key things when it comes to presenting? like at conferences or how to like lend the format in the most well-received way?
1: I have a, a couple of things. I mean, uh, of course, let's see, wow. Hmm. Two things that work in general, regardless of what you're talking about and length of presentation. Um, so one, when you're organizing a talk, it can be quite helpful to tell them what you'll tell them tell them, tell them what you told them, right? So you have kind of, and, and of course, the, the meat of the presentation is, well, tell them, but that's why, I mean, you, you so often see, let's say it's a slideshow presentation and this the you know second slide is an outline of the presentation. I mean, there's a reason that that works. It helps to organize the talk. It helps make it more accessible for the audience. So they know, okay, this is what I'm gonna be listening for. Now let me hear about it. And let's conclude at the end and summarize and wrap up. So that is just a a format that works really well for presentations. The second thing, and, and sometimes we as musicians have kind of a, I don't want to call a magic bullet, but we have, you know, the use of music, which helps with this, but you want some way at the beginning of a presentation to connect with the audience. And this can happen in different ways. Sometimes it's through telling a story. I said, you know, we have as musicians, um, you know, we have music that can help us connect with the audience. Sometimes it's telling a joke, right? But if you can connect with the audience and get them up, like emotionally engaged with you in some way that helps to hold their attention and keep them interested in you and what you have to say, right? I remember um, I'm not a big joke person. Um, I'm just, I don't know. I'm not a jokester that doesn't come naturally to me, shall we say. Um, but I do remember being at a conference. I think it was in San Diego In San Diego, right? Where where you are now, but this was a a while (laughs) ago at this point, I remember going into this presentation and I was inspired to kind of tell a joke and it had to do with kind of where all the rooms were at the conference. But, um, you know, I'm not intentionally a funny person but somehow this joke worked <laughs> right and i had everyone laughing like within the first you know 30 seconds of my talk i'm like oh that's good and then i just i had them for the rest of the, the talk so yeah if you can find some way to connect it doesn't have to be a joke it can be a story music what have you um that can help quite a bit too so so those those work regardless again of the type of presentation the length but always keep in mind you know, who your audience is, right? And so, how you're talking about your topic, um, you know, when I'm talking again to nurses versus students versus legislators, even if I'm talking about the same thing, like, you know, what is music therapy? The examples I use, I'm, I'm always trying to, okay, what's the connection that that person will get, that that person will understand? Uh, so, whether it's one person, whether it's a group of people, you want to aim to tailor what you're saying and the examples and stories that you tell that'll resonate with that audience and then the shorter the presentation really the more planning you need like if I have a presentation that's 20 minutes or shorter I script it out I write it out Um, because oftentimes there's so much I want to say, and I want to be sure it gets in there. If you have a longer, like the AMTA conferences, generally your presentations are an hour and 15 minutes. You can kind of just go and ramble and, you know, I'll have a basic structure, but just kind of talking through what's on the slide.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I think that's very helpful, especially to those who have never presented. And especially when you're thinking about presenting outside of the field of music therapy, those are some great takeaways.
1: And and outside of the field of music therapy in particular, I always try to include something experiential, right? Because people aren't gonna remember, you know, there's only a limited amount that they'll remember what you told them, but they'll remember how you make them feel. Mm-hmm. And music makes us feel, period. It, You know, it, it. most people, like the vast majority of the human population, music makes us feel. So I always try to include some sort of experiential with non-music therapists whenever possible. Yeah.
0: And we will continue talking about all the different aspects of communication, whether in a conference forum or in individual advocacy right after this break. everyone and welcome back to the Voices of Music Therapy podcast. We are sitting down with Dr. Kimberly Sennamore and we are currently talking about communication and how it can affect all the different aspects of our profession and the professions all around the world. (laughs) So essentially we are going to dive into advocacy next and talking about accessibility and these different ways that we can be most effective. So I would love to give you the, the stage here to continue talking about this great topic?
1: Uh, starting with this idea of advocacy. And, and again, this is, um, it's something that anytime you're asked the question, what is music therapy? I mean, you asked me at the beginning of this episode. <laughs> That's yeah. my understanding of music therapy. Um, you, Anytime you're explaining what you're doing, how you're doing it, why you're doing it, you are serving an advocate. It's just, it's a part of, just what we do as not even just professional students as well. I mean, students, how many times do you get asked at, you know, the holiday dinner table? So you're studying what again (laughs) in college? All right, Brian just rolled his eyes. So you've had that experience every day. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Um, and, and we're not unique in that way. I I remember that the first time That really hit home for me. I was at a regional, Midwestern regional conference. This happened to be in Fort Collins. And there was um, an occupational therapist who was presenting with a a music therapist. And this occupational therapist says something like, yeah, she goes, you know, people think that we're there to help people get jobs. (laughs) She's like, I have to constantly explain what it is I do as an occupational therapist. So we are by far not unique in, in this way, so just, you know, I tell my students, you just got to embrace it, take it as an opportunity, don't get frustrated when you're asked, you know, take it as an opportunity to talk about this thing that you love with somebody else and just help spread the word. Um, so so when it comes to advocacy, I mean, it, it happens at all levels from you know telling the cashier at the grocery store to the family at the holiday table all the way through hey, we're meeting with a state agency official we're talking to somebody um, reimbursement we're talking to a state legislator right so so it can be formal as as well. but when it comes to i I think there are really two pillars to successful advocacy. one is and it's a bit outside the scope of the topic for this, this show, but it's um, something I alluded to earlier. It's relationships. It's about, you know, successful advocacy is built on building and nurturing relationships, whether again, it's with colleagues, whether it's with administrators, state agency officials, what have you. But the second pillar is this idea of communication because, because you are there to educate, you're there to explain, you're there to um, answer questions and so, having the mindset of being open and willing to do that, and knowing—and and this is, uh, you know, a theme that's come up a couple of times now—who is your audience? How can you, in in the stories that you share, the musical examples you share, how can, what what can you communicate that will resonate with them? Right. Um, this isn't totally advocacy, but, you know, part of my clinical work back in the day was working at a medical facility. And, you know, oftentimes I would just see patients, as many do, I'm, I'm not unique in any way in, in this way, but, you know, I had, I think, 12 hours a week of, of services. And so I did contract at this facility, but I would often see patients just once, right? And I would have 30 minutes. And when you go in, you're going in and you're giving your spiel, and you have, you know, a couple of minutes to develop rapport and kind of outline, okay, what is it that we're working on right now? <laughs> but another important piece of that, and with the rapport too, is noticing what is or is not in the room, whether it's a picture, whether it's a blanket, whether it's flowers, what have you, and and using those those cues and the small talk that you would do at the beginning to help connect with the person. And and I bring this up, I am going to tie this back to advocacy, but I bring this up because I think it's, it's so important when you're talking with somebody and you're in that advocacy headspace and you're trying to connect with them, what are some things that you know about them, or you can pick up about them that may resonate. And again, we are as music therapists, I, I think, attuned, so attuned to humans and human behavior that that's actually, I think, easier for us than perhaps other professionals.
0: And I love that you tied in, yeah, the individual things that can be in the spaces, because especially if you're thinking about office meetings or any type of advocacy in that way, people love to express themselves and the spaces that they create is that, is that expression.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And so pick up on those, you know, <clears throat> or um I often I use geography a lot. i mean, i've I've moved around a lot. and so um, you know, it's it's common to say, "Oh well, where are you from or how long have you lived here? and and so i I often use geography as a way. I mean, I did it with you, Brian, at the beginning of this., oh, where are you where are you living right now? Hey, I lived in, I did my internship in San Diego, you know, <laughs> and so fair enough, um, right? <laughs> Right. Yeah. So there's, that's just one of my, that's just a personal go-to. It's not the only way to connect with people, but that's one of my go-tos.
0: That's so interesting. I think one of my, not to talk about me, but I think one of my go-tos is humor. I, that's where I like plug in. Cause it's funny that you were saying like humor and like making jokes doesn't necessarily come naturally to you. Cause that's like my entire like rapport building is humor is such a big part of that for me.
1: I admire that so much. <laughs> I wish I wish I'm, I'm generally unintentionally funny.
0: <laughs> but that's I laugh still a lot. Great. I laugh yeah. easily, but yeah. Um, yeah. You, you, when you were speaking, uh, tying it to the beginning of when you were talking about advocacy, I was thinking about when you were saying that students often think about like the first time that they explain music therapy to someone, And I was thinking from an educational standpoint, this power and words and phrasing that you can use to reframe those prompts of what is music therapy. A really great example of that would be when people say musical therapist, that is not necessarily something that made me mad when I first heard it. I I was kind of neutral to it, but I was kind of taught to respond very negatively to it. That wasn't my first inclination. Right.
1: It's I don't think I mean i I will i I don't know if you saw this. I do still cringe hearing musical therapy, but it's not that. malicious. I mean that's the thing it's not malicious. it's kind of like you know people mispronouncing my last name, which happens all the time you and I talked about this this earlier I think pre-recording because I mm-hmm. will always have to explain my last name which which I'm fine with I mean so so it's not malicious i I personally think that most you know most of those types of errors I mean it doesn't do any good to respond negatively right the the it's an opportunity to educate and inform so there's really kind of I don't think any reason even if you do I cringe with musical therapy but it's an opera well it's actually music music therapy sometimes it's musical but you know there's a way to compassionately. Correct.
0: That's a great time to, to use the humor. Cause usually I go as much as I love West side story. My musical therapy is not that great. And typically I just <laughs> go for other types of music.
1: That's good. I like that one. I like that one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: So you can kind of, yeah. Work your way around it a little bit.
1: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Are there any um, last thoughts regarding communication that you would like to share and in addition to that, this is one of my flaws in communication as well. I'm, I'm seeing mm-hmm. it as I've always known. I tend to ask multiple questions at the same time. But are there any last communication things that you want to mention or any ways that people can find you, um, reach out, um, anything that you would like to plug as well?
1: Yeah. Well, I am pretty easy to find online. I, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook. I have blogs. <laughs> um, my handle is Kimberly S. Moore like on Twitter and Facebook. And then I think it's on Instagram, Kimberly S. Moore, MTBC, because Kimberly S. Moore was already taken. Um, And then I have uh, two blogs. I'm I'm kind of in a break from active blogging, but I'll get back to it because I really do love it. Um, I've had the Music Therapy Maven blog since 2009. Um, And I have a blog called Your Musical Self on Psychology Today um, that I've been doing since 2010. So that, that one, that your musical self is more intended for kind of the general population, um, talking about different ways music impacts us, how music impacts us, health, wellness, development, all, all of that. The music therapy maybe is much more music therapy specific. And the topics there have evolved as my career has evolved. You know, early on, it was a lot of business and business practice. And now it's more kind of education focused. When I actually have the space to sit and write. So, so I'm pretty easy to find. Uh, and then in terms of final thoughts, it's it's really goes back to this idea of I, I think it's so important and helpful to reflect on our written and oral communication styles and habits to be aware particularly of changes like in and social culturally influenced changes in language and how language is used and where language is used. I mean, things we're seeing now um, include, and I noticed this on your, we're recording this on Zoom, on your Zoom name, that you have Mm -hmm. your personal pronoun next to your name, right? And some do and some don't. And that may be something that we start seeing more of. Or, you know, like being aware of, of when you're posting images on social media, having the text description of them. So that somebody who is visually impaired can access what, and kind of understand what it is. I'm not, I don't always remember that. I'm I'm personally trying to be better about that. (laughs) I'm not great at it. I don't always remember, but I'm trying to be better about it. But there's some music therapists out there who are just so consistent and great in being sure to include those text descriptions. Mm -hmm. So again, it's that awareness, it's that intentionality, it's that noticing and incorporating changes as things evolve, which they will, they're going to continue to evolve. Again, I that's, find it fascinating.
0: <laughs> yeah. That's one of the wonderful things about our profession and like culture in general is that everything's always changing. And so instead of looking at it as opportunity or as a moment where you, you constantly have to adapt and it's stressful, it, it can be a hard shift, but it's, it's what makes it so amazing to be in this like evolution. <laughs> wow. I mean, now I'm getting really philosophical, but like in life, it's, it's, it's a wonderful way to see how everybody can individually be represented and respected. So.
1: Absolutely. In all of the rainbow spectrum that we are.
0: <laughs> and thank you all once again for listening. And thank you so much for coming on to the show.
1: It was my pleasure. It was a, I, I enjoyed this. So thank you so much for the invitation,
0: Brian. Thank you. I enjoyed it a lot, too. And I'm sure our listeners have learned a lot and have quite a few action steps that they can walk away with from today's episode. And don't forget to rate our podcast on Apple Music and listen to our playlist that we always have uh, correlating with each episode. So if you want to hear some good music that you can add to your repertoire or just music that you can listen to on your drive when you want to have a break from some podcasts, feel free to listen to that there. And you can follow us on Instagram as well. All those links will be in the show notes. And for accessibility reasons, you can always listen to and watch the closed captioning on YouTube. Thank you all for listening. and We look forward to having you on our next episode of Voices of Music Therapy. If you'd like to see today's guest or learn more about the show, check us out on Facebook or Instagram at Voices of Music Therapy or on Twitter at V-O-M-T Podcast. If you have any questions or if you know any innovative music therapist and would like to recommend them for the show, you can email us at Voices of at gmail.com.